0: Greetings to all, SCC is together again. Here we are, Um, first opportunity on the cool new set. I'm not used to sitting and preaching, so I'm gonna try not to get up. I'm gonna try not to like, you know, this, this is new for me, this is new. But we're gonna, you know, we're gonna grow, we're gonna adapt like we all have had to this last year. And I'm gonna preach from a nice, cozy couch, nice little love seat. Now my love isn't seated here with me, which would have been nice, but you know, that happens. So we continue our teaching series on James. Uh, James and the series has been called Living Faith. But now when you say living faith, is it living faith like faith is breathing, thinking, walking, choosing, living? Or is living faith like living happy, living joyful, living content, living faith? It's an interesting question. I'm glad I asked it. And I think we can agree to both because faith is something we live with, and it's something we choose, and it's something that's alive in us. So here's to living faith. So in 2005, U.S. and Sweden Went to war. You might have missed it. Happened in the North Atlantic Sea, but actually it was a naval war games. So it wasn't like aggressive. You know, Sweden didn't say, finally say, that's it, US, enough's enough, let's go, because that's not really the way Sweden operates. But it was a series of um, Atlantic and uh, NATO countries, and they were doing these naval games to kind of test each other, sharpen each other. And so it was the turn for the U.S. to take on the naval might of Sweden. And guess what? With one sub, Sweden beat the entire U.S. northern fleet. Now, the Northern Fleet is not a small thing. It is one the aircraft carrier surrounded by battleships, surrounded by destroyers, surrounded by other support vehicles. So we're probably talking 30 to 40 large water going vessels against one Swedish sub. Now, what was unique and what was new that Sweden had reached into its history and had redesigned the Sterling Diesel. Engine and it gave them some incredible opportunities. So they weren't even running a nuclear-powered sub But everyone was used to doing combat against nuclear-powered subs. No, this was the ever-so-quiet Sterling diesel engine and with one sub Sweden was able to drop under the entire naval fleet Come up send one torpedo into the aircraft carrier and then return the whole time unnoticed So in 2005, Sweden beat the U.S. Navy. Now, why do I share this story? We're going to jump into James 4, and I have been given the prodigious task of sharing on James 4. Like, this is not an easy thing. Many of us know James is Jesus' half-brother. So if I were to compare James to an athlete, I would compare him to an ultra-marathoner. Now an ultra marathoner is somebody who runs a hundred kilometer races. That's a lot, that is a long time. So these aren't the guys you'd come up to for just some casual health tips. He is an all out, no gray, he is totally bought in and um, he is just an utterly committed believer and you can see that in his writings. So when you read James, you have to read with a measure of grace because James is brutal. He will beat you up, so you have to read it with a measure of grace. But as we talk about today, as we dive into James 4, there, like, we could be the US Navy, and we could have the aircraft carriers, and the multiple battleships, and the multiple destroyers, and the multiple submarines, and all these different support vehicles, and yet still sin can find its way into our hearts and it can expose us, and it can trap us. And if we're not careful, it can destroy us. So, while James does just a brutal job at challenging us and our righteousness, we're gonna talk about the heart that James exposes, and we're gonna get we're gonna, we're gonna move along pretty quickly to James 14, which I think is one of the most astounding verses in all of scripture. And so, so let us start. We talked about James and the ultra-marathoner, Um, witnessing the life of Jesus up close, James, he saw the miracles, he he heard the teachings, he saw the sacrifice, and the book of James is five chapters of cut-to-the-bone dynamite. It will change you. Now, chapter four is all about the position of the heart. Is the position of your heart to the world, or is the position of your heart to God? Now, verse one through eight, it sets the stage. Man's desperation driven by evil desires, not so great. In James 4, James calls out spiritual adulterers declaring that friendship with the world actually makes you an enemy of God and makes God your enemy. Now, verse 9 and 10 is just an unabashed, unapologetic call to repentance and humility. Verses 11 and 12, It takes a hard shift to how we speak about others. And no soft language from James, what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Like James is just an in your face, does not give you a second, very intense individual. Again, if our heart is towards God, we are filled with grace because we are his children walking in grace. James makes the argument that if we judge others that we are actually judging God's plan and purpose. So we shouldn't do that. We are called to obey God's laws, not to pick and choose which laws we like and which laws we don't, which laws apply to us and which laws we would rather ignore. Now, James 13 to verse 16 continues with the challenge and it challenges our pride our pride in ourselves. James uses the very specific language about how we talk about our plans and our future. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And James caution us, how do you know? How do you know? You shouldn't say, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do this. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills. And, and like this truth, this truth couldn't be more real and more apparent to us than, than 2020 was. Because how many of us had COVID and coronavirus in our three to five year plan? Like, hey, in, in, uh, in, in 2018, we all sat down and said, okay, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to this. going launch a church. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do this. And then, and then in 2020, the whole world is going to shut down because of a pandemic. Who had that in their plans? So, so when we make plans, it should always be in the contingency of our heart or in the condition of our heart to say, if, if this is God's will. If, if, if God permits this. So I wanna take a moment and just touch on this. And this is just, it's a me thing and it's in a communication thing. I I know as believers we can get tangled up in what I call sincere language. Like James gives us a very specific phrase. Don't just say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Say, if the Lord permits. And I, and I agree with the sentiment, I agree with the thinking and the thoughts. There was somebody specific that James was speaking to And I just want to challenge us to to hear the admonishment, but can we focus on the heart more than simply a phrasing of words? Is your heart towards God or the world? Are you praying? Are you asking? Are you submitting your plans and dreams to God? Or are you going to get this done with his help or not? Are you even considering his input? And I would just say that in regards to this small rant, please, please, please include God in your input. But I would also like to introduce a phrase that, in all honesty, I haven't had to use very often in Sweden because it's a very unchurched country. And that is a simple little phrase that I used a bunch when I was pastor in the US, and that is this overchurched. Do you know people that are overchurched? They just got a little too much church in them. And and what I don't mean, nothing about like hanging out with God and spending time in his presence, spending time in his people. What I mean by over-churched is when you think that everybody you interact with is a part of your church, okay? And that's just not the reality of the planet we live on. So over-churched can assume that people should know what you're thinking because you assume they have the same church experience you have. Nah, they're just a little overcooked. They're a little overbaked, been in the oven a little too long. They are over-churched. And so, my simplest definition of an over-churched person is a person who critiques you more than they pray for you. They are quick to point out what you should say this way or that, because that's how Jesus would say it, but at the moment they're saying it, you actually don't feel any real presence of Jesus you don't feel his grace or his encouragement, that's over-churched. And this comes out of this phrase that I remember somebody shared with me about how make sure that when you take your kids to, make sure that you take your kids to Jesus and you don't just take them to church. And oh, did you feel that too? Oh, because this is about the position of our heart. Is our heart towards God or is our heart towards the world? Because there can be a lot of worldliness in a building with a cross on the front. And so we have to make sure the position and direction of our heart. So so I would, I'd like to wrap this little thought up this way. We don't need any world word police, okay? Who try to check minor phrases and yet ignore real spiritual conditions. Have you had an encounter with an overchurched person? And you know what, sometimes I have to be honest, there are probably times that I come off as an overchurched person. And you know, if I were to be really honest with you, there are probably times that I probably most come off like an overchurched person to my own kids. And so, man, I have to remember to take people to Jesus and not just to church. Now, just you know the practical balance. If someone is sharing about plans and and you have authentic concerns for them, I would encourage you to say this: Hey, while you're listening, you're taking it in, but you feel a little check in your spirit. I would say, Hey, hey, um, man, this sounds really interesting, and and I'm excited for you. I, I'm going to be praying, and and there might be some concerns, but hey, is it okay if I pray about it first? And and let's just get together and let's find some ways that I can encourage you. Okay, hopefully you can then gauge to see if the person is open to some criticism, maybe to some conversation. You can see if it's just your reaction or maybe the Holy Spirit's doing something new and you just weren't ready for it. So so again, let's be really smart on, on how the position of our heart reflects in our communication, how we interact with others. Let's not be the word police. But man, let's bring grace and encouragement and, and let's let's see people changed by his spirit. I just put this line here. Let's be Jesus followers and grace bringers and let's avoid over-churched tendencies. Can we do that? So, so let's submit our plans. Let's put it before God. Let's pray, let's dream and just say, God, if you would, I'd love to be a part of this. God, would you bless this? God, would you smile on this? So, man, I know this feels so fast, but all of a sudden we're at James 4, verse 17. And this verse, they're just different verses that as reading through them, you just you just stop. I'm like, I don't know if I can go any further. I, this one verse just is such a a fork in the road verse. It just cuts through everything. So, James itself is a thick book. It's five chapters, but you could read those five chapters for a month. Monday, James 1. Tuesday, James 2. Wednesday, 3. Thursday, 4. Friday, 5. Read it every day of the week for a month, and I promise you, you will change the way you interact on this planet. You'll change the way you focus. You'll change the way you think. You'll change the way you pray. You'll change how much you talk. You'll probably talk less and pray more. So if you need a spiritual challenge, grab James, because this is an amazing, amazing book. So James 4, and this is in the uh, Contemporary English Version. It says this, if you don't do what you know is right, it is sin. That, there it is. There is the whole work of the Holy Spirit. If you don't do what you know is right, you've sinned. This is the simplicity of sin. Okay, let me give you an example. Garden of Eden. Eve grabs an apple, takes a bite, hands it to Adam. Is Eve the first sin? Did she know because if you read through genesis 2 you see that god has the conversation with adam before eve was even formed so she takes okay so uh, da, ba, 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 here we are on my notes we're good together thank you holy spirit okay so she takes a bite and hands the apple to eve eve hands the apple to adam And then he takes a bite. So Adam watched as Eve took the apple and then took a bite. And if you don't do what is right, it is sin. So one Adam, speak up. Eve, why are you hanging around with the tree? Why are you talking to the snake? Come on, let's let's go. Let's walk away. Adam, protect your wife. Also known as the only other human on the planet. Eve, put the apple down. Give me the apple. Throw it away. Hey, Adam, how about this? Refuse the apple. Eve, why'd you take that bite? No, I I can't take that. God said no. Instead, what does Adam do? Is he so close that he can hear the conversation? Can see the conversation? Because the scripture simply says that Eve took a bite and then handed it. Maybe I should use this hand so it's in the camera and then handed it to Adam. Is this where Adam was when Eve was going through the temptation with Satan? Adam, step up. And this is interesting because while Eve often gets blamed and everyone's like, Eve, how could you, how could you? We see often in the New Testament, it's attributed to Adam, the introduction of sin to humanity, specifically in Hebrews, if you want to spend some time going deeper with it. It is through Adam that sin is introduced, but it's through the second Adam, Jesus, the first of his kind, that sin is destroyed. And so, when we stand before Jesus, thank you, amazing plant. I don't even know if you can see, there's a beautiful plant here. You've seen the set before. I needed to scoot the table out because I'm a little bigger than Carolyn. I was kind of mansplaining, no, manspreading, manspreading. Is preaching mansplaining? I hope not. You don't have to comment about that. Here we go. So, when we stand before Jesus, could he simply just ask us, did you do what you knew was right to do? The phrase, I tried, not going to get us to heaven. The phrase, sort of. The phrase, no, is honest, but that also isn't going to get us to heaven. And this is the power of God's word. All the prophets, all the laws, the Ten Commandments. James brings it to one simple statement and it cuts through it all. Now here is the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of my savior and your savior is that Jesus is not standing there saying, see, see, you you sinned there and you sinned there and you sinned there and there and there and I could probably go on another half an hour saying there and 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 I still wouldn't have exhausted it all. How many times do we know what we should do and we don't do it? And sometimes these aren't acts of omission, these are acts of arrogance, these are acts of ignorance, and these are also acts of indifference. I should care, uh, but I should step up. uh, Someone else should do something. Arrogance, ignorance, indifference, none of it matters. If you know what is right and you don't do it, it is sin. Yuck. And again, the great news, is Jesus is not standing there saying, there, 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 there. Instead, Jesus is saying, come to me. Jesus isn't accusing. He's saying, come to me and I will give you rest. My Savior, my Savior, when I'm having that internal struggle of, should I give the effort? My Savior saying, hey, call on my name. You know, another great moment is that when I come to grips with my sin, when I come to the reality of my sin, and I don't know what to do, Jesus says, believe in me and find forgiveness and salvation. Oh, man, that's my Savior. That's your Savior. That is what is available to each and every person on this planet. James will beat you up. So you better come at this with a measure of grace. You better understand that Jesus is the son of a holy God, perfect and pure. And then it's not a casual thing, it's not a nice thing, it's not a cuddly cute thing that Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross for our sins because he knew there would be moments in our life, not a few, many, that we would know the right thing to do but we wouldn't have the courage We wouldn't have the willingness or we wouldn't have the knowledge to know to do the right thing and we would fail. We would fail God, we would fail loved ones, we would fail our community, our neighbors. We would fail those that need us the most. And so, if you don't know what is right, you need a savior. You need Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus, when we call on his name, brings us to the Father and he says, hey, hey, Dad. They're with me. It's not about being perfect. But it is about the direction of your heart. Is your heart towards the world? Or is your heart to Jesus and to the kingdom of God? It's not about perfection, it's about direction. And that direction is very, very important. James 4. James, thank you so much for experiencing all that you did. Thank you, James, for not holding back but expecting the best from us because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, James, that the best is available to us. It's not about perfection. It's about direction.